0: You're listening to The Good Dirt. with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world, give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, to see if they might turn into fresh soil from which new life might spring. We're reporting today on Gadigal Country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God, and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and present. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under indigenous leadership that it may remain and become a home for us and for all god's creatures today we're talking rivers specifically the murray darling we're going to be doing something a little bit different with this episode where we're going to spend the whole episode just thinking about the context of and current stories happening to do with the murray darling river system i'm here today with dr miriam Pepper a good friend of mine and also a researcher at the National Church Life Survey, a research fellow at Charles University. Miriam has both qualitative and quantitative research skills, cross-disciplinary academic training in engineering, German language, environmental science and social sciences, and a background of community environmental activism. Miriam's research interests include sustainable living, consumer studies, environmental psychology and sociology, psychology and sociology of religion, eco-theology, intersections between religion and consumerism, intersection between religion and politics, community food systems, social movements, and social capital. As you can see, Miriam's quite a generalist with a broad base of knowledge, and she has a lot to contribute to this topic specifically. We'll hear about that in just a second. Miriam is also a sessional lecturer at the United Theological College out at North Parramatta, helping to teach the research methods course there, and also contributing to the creation and ecology course that Dr. Jason John leads, and that I've contributed the odd lecture to as well. Until recently, Miriam also helped to host Ecofaith on the Air, a podcast and radio show on 2BBB. That was a regular discussion of issues to do with faith and ecology. And once again, Miriam and I were on that show on a panel together, each month and then Miriam was also doing other episodes on top of that and that was a lot of fun, uh, that that wound up just recently. So welcome Miriam, it's great Thank to have you. you here.
1: Thanks for having me Byron, good to be
0: here. Yeah, excellent. It's nice that we actually get to have this conversation face to face. We've had many recorded conversations before. Many of them have been over the phone or over video link ups and so it's, it's really great to be in the room with you. Our first segment will be What's the Big Idea? followed by what's going on, and then the third segment, what do we do about it? And so this first segment is introducing a concept that's gonna help us join the dots between news stories. It's gonna give us a tool to illuminate what might otherwise be mysterious, to help us understand the context within which these stories are happening. Uh, and so sometimes it may be a concept from science or it could be from theology. It could be from sociology or history or uh, from whichever field, uh, but some big idea that is going to help draw together these stories. And some of the ones we've covered before with Scott Sanders, we talked about the theological idea of common grace with Brooke Prentice. In the second episode, we talked about just world belief. Uh, last episode with Lisa Sharon Harper at the end of last year, we talked about core spiritual lies. Uh, And this time, we're going to talk about the Murray-Darling River System, which is a bit less abstract of an idea, perhaps, than some of those other ones. And yet, it is a crucial concept for all of us in Australia, because the Murray-Darling Basin is uh, such an important part of the ecology and history and economy and contemporary politics of this continent. And so, for the sake of our international listeners, but also for the sake of those urban listeners who may quietly raise their hands when asked, you know, how much do you actually know about the Murray-Darling Basin? I thought I'd give just a, a really brief sketch, a Wikipedia intro sketch, really, and I'm gonna read some of the uh, Wikipedia article here. The Murray-Darling Basin is a large geographical area in the interior of southeastern Australia. Its name is derived from its two major rivers, the Murray River and the Darling River. The basin drains around one-seventh of the Australian landmass. That is about a million square kilometers. That's one of the most significant agricultural areas in Australia with the water in the rivers being used to irrigate any crops. It spans most of New South Wales and Victoria, as well as the Australian Capital Territory and parts of Queensland and South Australia. The rivers themselves run for thousands of kilometres, being the longest rivers by far in Australia and some of the longest rivers in the world. And yet the dozens of tributaries that contribute to this huge area, this huge basin, tend to be long and slow flowing, and the overall volume of water carried in them isn't particularly large by global standards. Australia, as the driest inhabited continent, this is our largest river system, and yet, as we're gonna go on and talk about, it's a river that doesn't even always meet the ocean. Total water flow in the basin has averaged around 24,000 gigalitres per year. A gigalitre is a billion litres, which is an awful lot. And yet, for a river system of this size, that's relatively small. For a bit of comparison, I think I'm right in saying Sydney Harbour contains about 500 gigalitres. About 6% of all Australia's rainwater falls into the basin, and in most years, only half of that rainfall reaches the sea. In dry years, much less, because a lot of it is absorbed by the very dry soils along the way. And there's a very large range of flows from very dry years to very heavy years. And so the, the flow has ranged from uh, around 5,000 gigalitres in 1902 to 57,000 gigalitres in 1956. And so you can see there, that's a, an 11 fold difference.
1: Yeah, so the, the Darling River, which is an incredible river, a very long river, the fall of the Darling River from where it starts um, to the the mouth of the Murray Darling, it's joined the Murray River by then, the mouth of the Murray. Um, it's a very very small fall, and so it, it so so the variability for the Darling River is enormous. So yeah, yeah from uh, wet so wet times through the, to dry times, times you get enormous floods spreading out across what's a very very flat floodplain to you know what we see now, which is yeah a river
0: basically not flowing. Yeah, a collection of largely stagnant pools a lot of the time, uh, and even its more regular flow is fairly slow. For a river, because of the, the flatness of the land that it's going across. This isn't a rushing river with waterfalls and mm-hmm. you know, drama to it. That's
1: what right. so I saying. Mean, it's a much in, slower drama. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, speaking internationally, again, like the variability of the Darling is, by international standards, huge. Yeah.
0: Humans have a long history of interacting with this river, many uh, different First Nations peoples living up and down the length of it, it being one of the more productive and, you know, obviously a, a water source for many of those communities over thousands of years in a very dry interior of the continent and uh, since the arrival and invasion of people from Europe this river has become a very important part of Australian history contributing to Australia's agricultural output in all kinds of ways and so the management and control of this river that has such a variable flow uh, and yet plays such a critical role in so many of the communities along its length and in the economic activities that occur using its water as well as its varied ecology makes it a very complex topic. Currently there are four major reservoirs, there are 14 lock and weir structures and five coastal barrages which in some ways modify or block the flow down the length of the Murray-Darling and of the approximately 13,000 gigalitres of flow that studies have shown to be divertible, we'll get onto this later, that there's uh, different ways of measuring the water in the river. 11,500 are removed typically for irrigation, industrial use and domestic supply, with irrigation for agriculture taking by far the lion's share of that with about 95% of the raw water removals for irrigating crops, uh, including rice and cotton, both high water demand crops. And so the question of who gets that water and how much and when has long been a complex one, given that the basin covers five states and territory governments, and the Australian constitution places responsibility for managing water resources with the states. That makes it an even more complex question as the states have had to negotiate over the years, and even as far back as 1917, The Murray River Commission was established to begin that process of working out who gets what and it was focused on water quantity but over the years they realised that water quality and particularly salinity was a bigger issue and so by the 1980s the responsibilities of the River Murray Commission had uh, expanded and it was recognised that it was was not doing the job that was needed and that, that a new structure, a new agreement was required not least because Uh, During that whole period, Queensland wasn't even included in that commission. And so in the mid-1980s, the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement was first adopted, but it wasn't until 1993 that the full legal status was enacted. But then we had the Millennium Drought, and uh, that was a a real turning point for many things. And uh, Mary, do you want to say a bit about what the Millennium Drought was and why that was so significant?
1: Yeah, so the the drought in the early 2000s, um, right through to, to 2009, 2010. The, the, the Murray River stopped flowing to the ocean. I've had the great privilege of visiting many parts of the murray Island Basin. I visited the mouth of the Murray a couple of years ago. Um, and so, and, and even now, the mouth of the Murray is in very poor health. But back at that time, so the river didn't reach the sea, the acid, there were acid sulphate soils exposed in the lower lakes. Just before the mouth of the Murray, children were getting sick. Because of the toxicity of those soils, farmers could not continue in that area. The suffering across the basin at large, the Murray Mouth, you know, I've mentioned particularly and often, you know, it's called the canary in the coal mine, a mouth of a river um, is an indication of the health of the broader system. But the suffering in the basin because of the lack of water during the millennium drought was horrendous. And at that time, there was a realisation that this couldn't continue and that too much water being extracted from the system meant that it was highly vulnerable during drought. And so after that drought, we had a Murray-Darling Basin plan. Well, actually, there was the Water Act of 2007, so during during, um, the Millennium drought, which actually required the government to protect the health of the system. And following on from that, Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which was adopted by Julia Gillard's government in 2012, so agreed reductions in the amount of water to be extracted to help try to return the rivers to health. Yeah,
0: now we'll get into the, the details of the plan a bit more and its purpose in just a minute. Hmm.
1: Can I mention a couple of other things about, yeah. about the system as well? So you mentioned Byron how important it is for agriculture, so you said you know it's a seventh of the landmass of Australia, it's a third of the agricultural production, hmm. so you know, highly significant in terms of food and fibre. In Australia, and also in terms of exports. The other thing I mentioned too is that the biodiversity in the basin. So there are sixteen Ramsar-listed wetlands uh, in the basin. So that means um, Ramsar. is you know, well there's, there's an international convention for the prote- protection of wetlands, yep. and so under that under that convention, Australia has a responsibility to protect those sites. So they're recognised as being uh, of ecological
0: significance internationally. And you have quite a personal connection particularly over the last number of years, to the river and the complexity of these issues. Do you want to share a bit about your story in more recent years about how you came to spend so much time on and around the river?
1: Yeah, thank you, Byron. I've had the privilege of five separate week-long visits over five years to different parts of the Murray-Darling Basin. The Upper and Lower Murray, the Darling River, the Murrumbidgee River, uh, and the Northern Basin as well. So the rivers, um, many of them are ephemeral, Feed into the darling um, at its highest reach. Uh, and I have done that as a part of a group of others from the United Church who've been invited into the basin by basin communities to try and understand more about uh, this amazing, amazing river basin and its people, the communities that live there, its ecosystems, and to understand some of the complexity of the issues. That came on the back of the then draft Murray Darling Basin plan before it was adopted, where there were communities in the who were very, very concerned about what returning waters, returning water for environmental flow to the river would mean for their communities that were dependent on irrigation, and asked the Uniting Church to listen to their voices uh, and to come and meet with them and hear their story. So these visits to the Basin, organised by the Uniting Church, have come out of that request and that concern. So, you know, I owe a significant gratitude for to the organisers um, of those visits and so particularly Paul Creek uh, and others Paul Creek's uh, retired farmer from Lockhart, and to the communities that received us uh, in those very many places so for me as uh, a member of the church that spans this continent I wanted to respond to that request Um, and as you know a person who lives in the inner city who's environmentally concerned I felt that it's been my responsibility to pay attention uh, and to see for myself and then to to share what I've actually heard so not to speak on behalf of others but it's a responsibility and a privilege that that you know I've been able to do that to then talk about what I've seen with others and that that's really important.
0: Yeah great thanks for sharing that personal context and uh, at the end of your answer there you were raising an issue that I've pondered a little bit still don't feel like I have a, an excellent answer to. There's an important. Principle in discussing matters of justice and injustice particularly where there are strong power imbalances between different groups Uh, And it's a principle expressed in the slogan nothing about us without us Uh, Which is to say it can be very easy for members of a more powerful group to sit around comfortably and discuss and dissect uh, an issue that may not affect us as directly or as powerfully or as existentially at times uh, as, as uh, members of an oppressed group and those conversations need to include the voices and the perspectives of those who the issue most affects and so how do you feel about the two of us as urbanites in the inner suburbs of Sydney talking about this complex set of issues about a river that is hundreds of kilometers away and involves communities whose lives are very different to our own would you share with me a bit more of how you have thought about the, you know, that aspect of this question?
1: Yeah, thank you, Brian. And when I speak about these issues, I also I speak with some hesitation for, for those reasons, but speak also on the understanding that I'm connected with people from other churches and through the, the food I eat and the fibre I consume, I'm connected with the basin itself. I think it's, you know, it's incumbent on those of us who concern ourselves with these issues and, and want to talk about them pay attention to who we're listening to as well so when visiting these places that was one of the questions that I increasingly ask myself whose voices am I I hearing Mm -hmm. and whose voices am I not hearing I suppose another part of it is though that I think communities appreciate others taking an interest Mm -hmm. and appreciate the thought that is given to actually do so so there's so the giving and receiving of hospitality in that it's not all just one way. So for me, when I speak, you know, again, I explain my position. I'm, I'm not an expert on these issues. Um, I'm, I'm a concerned person who's sought to grapple with them. I have a concern for rural communities and churches in these places. I have a, a concern for the ecosystems. I have a concern for suffering in those places as well. And in you know, my own church context too, I acknowledge that the concentration of resources in the churches is often in the cities. So part of what I do is to try from what I have seen to speak to those issues as far as I say without claiming, you know, without claiming a particular investment that I don't have.
0: That's right. It is always important to be mindful of the the asymmetries of power that can happen in, in many of these discussions and to acknowledge our own privileges as well as our limitations and to, as Jesus says, pay extra attention to the spec not, sorry, to the log in our own eye before we start thinking about any specs that our neighbours might have in their eye.
1: Yeah, can I, can I also add to, Byron, for me, having visited the mouth of the Murray River, I came away, <laughs> I did not need convincing about how bad the health of the system was, having hmm. seen it, but in no small part that was due to the generosity of Aboriginal people in those places. And, and since that time, the Nod people, Traditional owners of that place have actually received what well, their native client, title claims been determined, uh, and native title is now recognised in that place for them. But I mention that because I think many people could go as tourists to these places mm. and not hear and not see. And so I say thank you and with incredible respect to those people, um, to the elders there, who the to people at Ralston, the Aboriginal uh, community there. At Lake Albert who took the time to receive and explain uh, and I know the group came away with so much more of an understanding so
0: yeah again it said to me
1: if you visit these places and we're hearing from you know the people in the communities who are relatively wealthy there's not just this kind of imbalance between city and rural um, but within the rural communities themselves as well Mm -hmm. there's there's definitely these these issues of justice um, as well that that outsiders um, should be sensitive to, yes. to in going there.
0: Yeah, that's right. The the issues of inequality and racism don't just match up with the urban-rural divide.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed, and and certainly in the basin as well, consultation has increased with First Peoples, but access to water hasn't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there are huge there are huge issues there where some have very high access to water on the basis of. So too much water taken from the system and allocated, uh, and allocated to irrigators. You know that's the situation we're in, but where um, Aboriginal people have not have not had that access. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a huge injustice. Yeah, we're talking about returning water to the rivers, and it's very clearly needed. There is this fundamental issue that's only just started to be addressed. Yeah. Now
0: let's tease out that question of the injustices at work here and what's the legislative context and what are the communities and stakeholders involved and what's going wrong. We'll, we'll do That's going to be the focus of our second segment. Before we get on to the second segment, we'll do another brief personal interlude, uh, which is to ask you about your pet peeves to do with the media. Are there things that the media do that really bug you? Is there a detail I keep getting wrong? Is there a practice they do that often distorts things? Is there something that always gets forgotten? Or what is it that makes you shake your fist at the radio or laptop screen, or wherever you're getting your news media from?
1: Mm. And so, so one thing which I find hard to take is the headline that doesn't reflect the, the content of what's being reported. Mm. So that's, uh, that's you know, I guess pretty a pretty minor one as far as these things go, but, uh, but yeah, right, that, I guess the, the media I consume, that way the media I engage with tends to be of a certain variety. There's certain media outlets that I that I don't read that I think, you know, I would be quite outraged by.
0: Yeah, but that is a perennial issue where the people who are writing the headlines are usually not the people writing the stories. Those writing the headlines have uh, one agenda. In, yeah. Yeah, they want your attention. The one writing the story wants to tell you what they found out, presumably, assuming they're acting in good faith at that point. And yeah, I mean, I think that's an issue that is exacerbated by social media, where you scroll down, you scroll down, you see the headline, you react to the headline, and the number of people who actually click through and read the story is really relatively small, which, you know, studies have shown and just even anecdotally my own experiences on social media and the number of times that I notice interactions, sometimes very lengthy interactions happening below a, uh, a link that's been shared. And it's clear that, that one or more contributors to the discussion just had no idea. Beyond the headline and they're purely reacting to that whether or not it reflects
1: the story mm. even in academic writing i've had you know experience or experiences of reading about a certain piece of work and when mm. i finally read the piece of work i think oh, that's what it said i hear, you know there's nothing that substitutes for for looking at the actual source that's right. reading the actual piece
0: judging a book by its cover isn't something that only began with facebook
1: no but, but the tendency to do it i think Because of the immediacy and the volume, you know, it's exacerbated,
0: isn't it? Yeah. Let's move on to our second segment what's going on? And we've already begun to get into some of these discussions, but we'll do it in this way rather than looking at particular news stories that came out on a particular date, which is the way that we often do the second segment, instead I'm going to do it a little bit more conceptually. And we're going to begin by sketching out some of the legislative context with the Water Act and and plan and its purposes. Uh, We'll move on to just making sure we enumerate the various major stakeholders in this issue and, and particularly noting the ones that often get overlooked in these discussions and then we'll spend most of our time talking about well why isn't this working? What are the contributing factors to the dysfunction that is becoming increasingly obvious even to more casual observers? So first, let's talk about the, the legislation. You mentioned the Water Act uh, of 2007 that came in during the Millennium Drought uh, a few minutes earlier. And in that act, the purpose of the yet-to-be-completed plan was laid out. And uh, there, was, there was one purpose that came through most clearly of all.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, so the act, key objects to ensure the return of environmentally sustainable levels of extraction for water resources that are over allocated or overused. Okay, so to return the extraction to environmentally sustainable levels and to protect, restore and provide for the ecological values and ecosystem services of the basin. So this, in the context of massive over allocation of water for human consumption, for irrigation, this piece of legislation was you know, a huge step, step forward and it said, this act we're aiming to actually protect um, the ecological values of the basin we acknowledge that they're important and that's what we will do mm-hmm. so that was in 2007 i mean it's important to say you mentioned already from the 1980s there were some key changes so this you know didn't come out of nowhere and in the 1990s there was actually an agreed cap on extractions as well mm-hmm. water extractions but yeah this water act of 2007 signaled that to reduce the amount of water
0: being taken out yeah there's a crucial principle here that applies not just to the Murray-Darling but more broadly which is as it was famously put by a U.S. senator a few decades ago, that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. All our human activities don't occur in a vacuum, and that environmental concerns aren't just a boutique set of concerns of tree huggers uh, who want to protect cuddly species. When we don't look after the health of ecosystems, we actually undermine the habitability of the planet and the living spaces on it. We're actually fouling our own nest. But if we don't get this right, then nothing else is going to work. If the river dies, the towns along it will go with it. There's a baseline level of non-negotiable health necessary, ecological health necessary for the river system. and That's the the first principle as we come to work out how to to care for this river.
1: Mm, And that's important too, because often the way the basin is spoken about and the way that issues of how much water to return are spoken about is, well, we need to trade off environmental, social and economic objectives in the way we're doing that. But what the what Act said was, you know, we need to secure the health of the basin and then with what water is extracted, that sustainable level of extraction, we use that and we optimise economic, social and environmental outcomes. So already it's saying, you know, as you were putting, that system health, the ecological values, the ecological functioning of the system is first, and of course we need investigation, good science you know, into that. And there's value judgments and all of that very clearly. Mm. But what it what it doesn't do is say this is what the science is saying is the range we should of water that we should return to achieve these objectives. That needs monitoring as well to see you know is that achieving what we're supposed to do. So it's not saying now let's reduce that amount because of the social impacts. It's saying you know this the Water Act requires that to be to be returned, and of course there's all kinds of implications of that economically and socially. But yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the the Royal Commission into the Murray Darling the Murray Darling Basin Royal Commission shortly. Yeah, it made the intention. That's right, and that
0: the, the, uh, the Murray Darling Basin Plan came up with a, uh, or rather, the the, the science, scientific research that was feeding into the plan came up with a minimum range of water flow that was necessary to maintain that those ecological values and the health of the river system and as is always the case with this kind of scientific research that comes as a range with degrees of certainty and uh, I don't off the top of my head remember the full numbers of that range but I think the, the lower end was 3,700 gigalitres and the upper end was double that. Yeah, um,
1: around that, around that. yeah,
0: But when it actually came time to legislating the figure am I right in saying that the figure the ended up...
1: That's right, it was lower than the lower end. Yeah. Um, yeah, so 2,750 gigalitres to be returned for environmental flows. Um, so below the lower end of, um, of what was needed for for the health of the basin. The science behind this is clear. So when that was decided upon, it was not made clear. So it wasn't transparent as to the basis for that decision making. And so, you know, people might have heard in the media, there was talk about, well, it has to have a two in front of it, you know, yeah. that, that, that kind of thing.
0: You, you mean there wasn't transparency in the political process that that's took right. that scientific finding and turned and, it into legislation?
1: And what We're not doubt. talking about
0: the transparency of the scientific research whose methods and calculations were no, based I mean, on publicly you say, published public results.
1: Information, I mean, it's, yeah, and as you say, there's, there's always uncertainty in these things, and that's why there's a range too. But, yes, the processes that led to the release of that 2,750 figure um, haven't been made public. And, I mean, it's supposed to be scientific, that's yeah, that is this what is. the Act requires. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, the guide to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, So, you know, which was before the plan was finalised and adopted, as you said, it had that range, that higher range of what should be
0: returned. Yeah, so it's important to note that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which as we'll go on to note, hasn't even necessarily been followed, already from the outset mm-hmm. failed to meet the objectives uh, that were stated in, in the legislation that led to it. So there's there's an initial failure there, we're going to go on and explore some of the further failures in a second but next I thought we might sketch some of the communities and stakeholders that are involved, that are impacted by this, that are contributed to the development of the plan and just note that there are a range of different groups who each have their own interests and priorities but also their own levels of political agency and ability to have their voice heard. As we've been noting, the first community and the one that literally doesn't have a voice is the ecological community of the river itself. The the species that live in and on and around the river, that use the wetlands for feeding ground or, or breeding ground, that rely on the chemical composition of the river and its temperature, which is related to the water flow. That is all the creatures whose life is bound up. The river itself. That this is the first community that is affected most profoundly by the health of the river, because they are the ones who directly rely on it to be their habitat. Trying to name some more groups so uh, in, involved here.
1: Yes, and so we we often hear from them quite a bit. The irrigation communities. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so I mean that's a very you know it's irrigators are large and small. You know that's a, a very diverse group of farming people, but they. You know the, the return of water to the rivers affects them in terms of um, reduced amount of water that's actually available yeah I mean we can talk in little a little bit a little while what some of what's happened there but yeah they're a key group I mean another group um, in the basin too are the you know the, the dry land farmers mm. as well so the the farmers and their communities that don't actually that don't irrigate so that might include you know farmers along the river itself that can have access to stuff water but you know others so uh, graziers and so on that don't, don't actually have irrigation licences. yeah
0: how are they affected by the health of the river if they're not directly extracting water for irrigation
1: yeah i mean well, some of them some of them are for stock and domestic and so certainly you know communities along the darling for example the river yes. stops, stops flowing i mean it, it's absolutely dreadful yeah uh, and there some communities that have needed water
0: to be trucked in yeah um, at, at certain points as the river water has been uh, either entirely absent or, or of such low quality that it's unfit mm-hmm. for consumption.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Walgett's one that's been, you know, in the news lately and, and might be top of mind there. So, you know, there are communities of people, and, you know, it's dry land and irrigation alongside each other as well. Mm. Yeah. Of course, but, but often it's important to think, um, think about those communities too. Also in drought, also very much affected, of course, like the food for stock,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you know, you know, so, in a visit last year, last August, to the northern basin, so higher up than the headwaters, or the headwaters into the Darling River, so I saw driving along in our bus acacias that had been just pulled over, like by chains, just mm. it, it's clearing, mm. it's clearing. But the, the explanation given was that this is pulling vegetation over for sheep to eat
0: so that there's such a lack of other things for the sheep to eat that they're needing to rip up yeah. established trees and, and, and bush, mm-hmm. bushes. This is uh, burning the doors of the house to keep warm kind of stuff. Like you're, you're actually destroying the long-term infrastructure, you know, infrastructure, yeah, infrastructure I mean, I guess, as it were, to, to meet know, a short-term the, need such as the, the pressure on...
1: The, I mean, the, you know, I guess the, the sheep farmers there would, would, you know, would voice, you know, what they're doing um, and why they're... But, you know, so for me it was quite a shock to, mm-hmm. to see that. And actually, and to see that sort of the whole parts of Southwest Queensland in such dire state, mm-hmm. it was definitely quite shocking. But I guess the health of that system and the communities that live in it is not just about the return of water to the waters to the rivers, but things like intensifying drought, mm-hmm. um, you know, the impacts of climate change in the basin, which are not reflected in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. You know, yep, they're issues that concern those communities alike. So yeah, the, the communities in their diversity
0: yeah, what what about uh, First Nations
1: communities? Yes, First Nations communities who who do who do not have the same access to water as some other as some other stakeholders do. But um, what does that actually look like in their daily lives to not have that access? How does that affect them? Certainly, the cultural significance of water, and then if waterways are in poor health. So for me, having heard people at the Murray Mouth, the Ngunnawal people speaking about the Kurong and the poor state health and the, the grief and So the, uh, outrage, being the, the,
0: the wetlands at the mouth of, right, the Murray.
1: of the yeah the wetlands of the Murray, Murray mouth which you know one, once upon a time biodiversity paradise but it's not the case now.
0: The setting for the iconic Australian story Stormboy. Stormboy
1: yeah yeah that's right. That's right. And so you know there's, there's issues there as well around you know access to traditional food sources uh, and all those sorts of things but you know the degradation of country over which People have traditional custodianship must be grief-filled, grief-filled for these people. But another thing is that they don't have commercial access to water Mm. in ways that irrigators do.
0: Mm. So they cut off both from economic opportunity, but also from the cultural meaning of being protectors of the land and the water and having that traditional guardianship role thwarted or severely curtailed by the limitations placed on the water flow. And so knowing themselves to be responsible for caretaking the, the health of the land and yet being able to contribute meaningfully or at least having their, their, their ability to contribute meaningfully significantly shortened or diminished. these are some of the impacts that you're sketching for. us here. Yeah
1: yeah and so I think that it's, you know, it's important for listeners, uh, listeners to also you know, seek out some of those voices as well. Mm. And you know they were just a couple of weeks ago, in the Sydney Morning Herald, reported that Indigenous groups were calling for a federal royal commission, Murray Darling Royal Commission, where we had uh, groups from the northern and southern parts of the basin actually calling for that and uh, and voicing their their lack of the lack of rights and the lack of access that they actually have. So, you know, so for the Barkindji people, Barker River or the Darling River, and these millions of fish deaths, you know, December January, You hear what the Barkindji people have to say about that.
0: Yeah. And we'll put links to that story and to uh, another piece that I noticed on theconversation.com. It's headline was Aboriginal voices are missing from the Murray-Darling Basin crisis. So we've mentioned the ecological community, the First Nations communities. We've mentioned irrigators and dryland farmers. We've talked about the rural towns that depend on the, the rivers for their water supply and often for recreation. But also there's you and me and the rest of us in this land. We too are stakeholders, perhaps less directly, but still in a very meaningful sense because we are citizens in a country where this is a major part of our politics, where uh, large amounts of taxpayer dollars get allocated, where the health of the land that we call home is at stake, and even just as consumers of the food and fibre that uh, originates in the basin. We are all connected, and even people overseas connected as consumers of some of the products of Australian agriculture. So there are many communities connected to varying degrees and with differing ability to speak into this situation.
1: Mm. Yeah, and the other, the, why the broader Australian public has an interest in this too, is because the murray darling Basin plan to return water to the system has got a $13 billion price tag on it. So that's taxpayer money. And so the Australian community wants to see that money effectively spent to achieve the objectives of the plan.
0: Yep. So if we move on now to why it isn't working and, as this money is being spent, as this plan has been drawn up, as it's intended to be put into action in order to protect these values and achieve these outcomes, it's clear that there are serious problems. I mean, most obviously recently with the massive fish kills, with millions of fish dying in a river that's so sluggish or stagnant that the oxygen levels are getting depleted, that has blue-green algae growing in it. It's actually as the blue-green algae die that they uh, rot and uh, Their rotting removes the oxygen from the water is often the proximate cause of death for these mass fish kills you know as we've seen stories of towns running out of water the Walgate that you mentioned before and just pictures of people playing cricket on the riverbed the dry riverbed uh, of parts of the darling river completely not flowing there are many indications of a river in deep stress, even for the sort of casual observer but when we actually listen to the experts both the First Nations people with their memories long term of the health of the river and also contemporary scientific research into the ecology of the river, very strong indications that this is a river in crisis. And so what has gone wrong? And what can we do about it? We'll get on to, but what what is it that's actually gone wrong? How is it that this river is in such poor health? Yeah, okay.
1: There's a complexity of reasons and the first is that when the water resources were already massively over-allocated, it's going to be hard to, to fix to fix that. So, it, a, that's a you know that's a social reality on the ground. So there are communities that are reliant on those extractions. So the irrigators who rely on that water, the communities of which they're part, the towns, um, and so on. So there's a social reality on the on the ground to do with dependence on irrigation. And
0: so, I that's a historical deal. mistake that there was a too much, there, 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 too the much infrastructure work. was built and communities were established on what was, was ultimately a false assumption that there would be enough water for them to engage in particular activities and to do it at a certain level of intensity there's a historical legacy of over
1: allocation yeah that's right that's right so not only are you saying this is all we will ta- all we will take we won't expand any further you're saying and we will
0: actually need yeah. some retreat
1: And this was why there was a there was a market established for water Mm -hmm. as well, so that there was a way to purchase water back. Yeah.
0: So this is where the thirteen billion of government money comes in, the government buying back the rights to water from irrigators and water users.
1: That's how it started, but then several years back there was legislation passed restricting the amount of water that could be bought back and said that the rest of that two thousand seven hundred Had to be returned through irrigation infrastructure improvements. So what we have then is those water buybacks ceasing and the money instead going into irrigation infrastructure improvements. But there's problems with that too.
0: Okay, so we'll talk about the problems in a second. Why was that decision made? Why did the buybacks stop?
1: So the irrigation community said this impacts this impacts on our communities badly. So you know the money goes to the irrigator and they then you know go and live on the Gold Coast or oh, yeah, whatever whatever it is. That was, that was what was said. And so that money doesn't actually go into the community at large. It's in the pocket of the irrigator. Uh, and then you have fewer irrigators in the system that are propping up an irrigation system as well. So, so fewer users, you see that as well. With, it's an issue with, with any infrastructure really. Yeah, so it compensated the wealthiest
0: so, members of that system because they are the ones who were using the most water. And so they are the ones who got the largest amounts so exacerbating existing inequalities in the region is this is this right that was, that was what that was what they said. said
1: yeah that was what they said yeah. yeah so the extent to which that's you know realized i guess you know that this is the this is the argument so what then happens what they advocated for was for more money to be spent on improving irrigation infrastructure so to make it more efficient so that, i mean it was both mechanisms that were happening but the cap said was was because the community said you know no more um, so I visited the, the town of Collie Amberley in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area. They've really gotten their act together and been able to source a lot of money for irrigation infrastructure improvements, but there are problems with that. So with the inefficient system, it meant that you got the waste, as it was called, the, you had water going back into the system, mm. um, in, a, in a leaky system, kind of, uh, that you had that happening. And also, the way that the accounting for the water works is that irrigators can keep some of the savings. These infrastructure improvements are actually not returning water to the rivers. What they're doing is putting a lot of money into irrigation, and so it's a sort of continuation of that high reliance on irrigation. And you know, no one's saying stop irrigation, but yeah, but yeah it's, so it's quite a perverse outcome.
0: Yeah, but we are saying that there needs to be a reduction in the total amount of irrigation, the total amount of water being. Extracted from the river, mm. and if one of the outcomes is a doubling down on the sunk cost, as it were, of the infrastructure for irrigation, mm. then potentially that just makes it more difficult to achieve some of that necessary retreat.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's clear that things need to be done to help communities that are affected by these changes, and the money needs to be directed accordingly. And you know, like local knowledge for those communities, like you and I, you know, aren't really in a position, of course, to say that. But is that assistance best given and if it's a lot of money going into something that's not achieving the objectives of the plan it's a highly perverse outcome
0: yeah so this then i think connects pretty directly with another part of the dysfunction that has received a lot of headlines which is the lack of transparency the lack of accountability even the lack of enforcement of the irrigators who are breaking the rules as the, the expose on ABC's Four Corners last year revealed, apparently, irrigators who were taking more than they were legally allowed to and yet were not facing consequences as a result of that, where the total number of government employees who were out there checking the water meters for all of the Darling River was actually smaller than the number of parking inspectors in a single city council. It's one of the stats that got thrown around. And even where there were cases of irregularities uncovered, there didn't seem to be much or almost any prosecution. People weren't getting in trouble for breaking the rules, basically, that they, the powerful players who were profiting from not just having initially received over-allocations, but who were then even under the plan taking more than they were legally allowed to seem to be getting away with it.
1: Yeah, and and that's, that's an issue as well in terms of the loss of trust. Mm. The loss of trust. So before that Four Corners story broke, so in August 2015 it was when we did our Darling River trip, um, we were hearing people in the community saying, where is the water? And very mistrustful of the New South Wales government. Yeah. And you know, it's, a, it's not just there either, there's a lot of mistrust from the communities on the ground who have been consulted or mm. um, if they have been consulted, they're not seeing how that's affected decisions. You know, lack of accountability and lack of transparency in relation to decision making breeds mistrust and in the context where you've got multiple states and federal government, like it's a very complex Mm. thing and, you know, states end up upholding their own interests, whereas what we need, you know, collaboration and trust and with the communities on the ground as well.
0: And so multiple levels of mistrust there, mistrust between jurisdictions and the states not trusting each other with New South Wales even recently announcing it's going to pull out of the plan. So even this plan that was not ambitious enough to achieve its own goals and that is not being upheld, New South Wales is saying it's too onerous and the current New South Wales government would like to redo it to get a a more favourable deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, as you're talking about mistrust between the people actually on the ground and their lack of trust in the the government uh, who ought to be, well, protecting the common good, who ought to be, Preserving the health of the river for the sake of all those who uh, live longer, and helping to connect the dots in the interests of water users upstream and downstream,
1: and helping support effectively support communities that need to adjust. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, and the issues of science in all of this as well. So when there appears to be disregard for the science that's supposed to underpin this, I don't think you know this is a broader issue as well, Byron, in terms of climate change and many. Yeah. Issues like the role of the expert uh, and uh, um, and the and the role of independence and science it fundamentally undermines you know something that needs science kind of at its core informing values to help make value based decisions. Yeah, uh, is another reason why this is problematic. And the government's pulled funding for monitoring and all kinds of things. So you know we've seen that with CSIRO as well. Again, not just in relation to the real system, but. Or generally but pulling out the funds for a scientific endeavor yeah. you know really makes it difficult to achieve these things
0: yeah. justice requires transparency and it requires knowledge and if the decisions are being made in the dark and on the basis of something other than our best scientific understanding then there are multiple potential locations for serious missteps to be made And it must be said too that some of the people involved in these decisions, those with very large amounts of money at stake, some of the major irrigators, are major donors to uh, political parties, are very major figures in their local communities and have have a lot of weight to throw around. And it's worth just, uh, again, noting that we're talking both at the state level and at the federal level here, that part of the innovation of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority was that in the constitution water is a state's right but this was legislation enacted at a federal level in order to try to balance the interests of the different states over a a water system that obviously spans you know five different jurisdictions and so we have a federal minister for water who during many of the crucial years we're talking about here was barnaby joyce a figure who himself has been subject of many scandals not the least of which is a number of allegations around how he went about acting as water minister and so we're not going into the specifics of those allegations here mm. but that there's certainly a, a significant loss of trust for both the New South Wales government and the uh, federal government in terms of whether or not they're really acting in good faith.
1: Mm. Yeah and so it's important here that the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission report yeah. that was released released on the 1st of February to the public I think which for so the South Australian government subsequent to the the water theft allegations um, in the Northern Basin and so on, um, established a Royal Commission very recently reported on. And so the commissioner, Brett Walker, has released a very good report. Uh, and the executive summary of that, it points to some of these issues you're talking about, but it was very limited in being able to do that because so Commonwealth public servants were not able to speak to the commissioner. So Murray... Well, when you Basin say we're County, not able, Let's put that we're on active, we yeah. actively blocked from, from speaking to the commissioner. A decision made by the That's Board like Minister. the incumbent the incumbent government. Yeah. 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 So so that's right, there was active blocking of the Commissioner doing his job.
0: Yeah. so the federal government deliberately thwarting the activities of a state royal commission and preventing that's federal that. employees from participating in the highest level of fact finding available to us under our system, a Royal Commission.
1: That's right, you know, an authority that's supposed to operate with transparency to achieve these goals on behalf of us all. Yeah. And, so, um, so, and this is why people are calling for a federal royal commission. Yeah. yeah because because it's yet yeah, that has been blocked and there's a whole lot of political processes at play that yet yeah, need to be gotten to the bottom of. Yeah. And so
0: did that stonewalling, in your opinion, affect the quality of the results of that Royal Commission?
1: Um so I've read the executive summary. I haven't read the full report. I say it's a very it's a very good report from what I can see um, and speaks very truthfully um, you know on, on the basis of the many submissions given and the many people who spoke with the Commissioner. So you know it makes very clear and, and says that the, the the authority and the water minister have not upheld the objects of the Act. It's a huge report seven 750 odd pages. I, I guess it is also true there's things in there that it doesn't say because of it scope and again it's inability to talk with you know, the people who are actually developing and enacting this plan.
0: Mm. So it's an important contribution but not yet the definitive one that's necessary mm. um, but certainly enough to say there have been significant systemic failures at both state and federal levels particularly in New South Wales at the state level but also especially at the federal level to actually follow federal legislation that mm. so there's certainly plenty enough here so treat this as a top level concern for voters in determining their electoral uh, deliberations. Mm. Is it
1: fair to say that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's fair to say that. It occurred to me then, as we were talking too, that for interested, for just people as well, is you know there are various environmental histories of parts of of Australia that are worth reading. The history of the white settlement, of the white conquest, we might say area for example is fascinating like mm. a place not feasible for um, the kind of farming and permanent plantings and so on that we see now Piranha. so you, you, you know what we have is kind of semi-arid land mm. that's irrigated now um, for grapes fruit and so on a you know very difficult in its early years for the farmers there who were put into those places because better farming land um, had been taken up elsewhere yeah so it was, Start to sort of see and appreciate some of that history. Yeah, um, that it's also then not so not so black and white. I guess as how hard it was, and yet set against say the you know many many thousands of years of habitation to say the Willandra Lakes, Lake Mungo, Mm -hmm. and so on. That 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 kind of white settlement falls into such a so tiny in comparison to that, and yet there was suffering there too it wasn't all it's not all straightforward yeah that
0: the individual actors agents people who were uh, you know have moved in in order to establish farming in certain regions in ways that have turned out to be wildly unsustainable were themselves within a larger system and were themselves subject to forces far larger than themselves and uh, working with limited knowledge and so this isn't a placing all the blame on the the first people to move in um, you know, set up the irrigation systems uh, but true, there's a systemic failure of society systemic here. Fire.
1: That's right, systemic failure and it's true of say um, dairy farming as well, mm. so you know, the, the better watered coastal areas, dairy farmers have had to move off them and are now in areas where you have to you have to have irrigation mm. for a dairy farm.
0: Yeah
1: and that's, so, that's you a, know again that's not an individual failing.
0: No, that's it's a, a failing of a, a system and it's a, it's a failing of the government authorities part of whose role is to have that bigger picture understanding of what's going on and to enact legislation that seeks to preserve the common good mm-hmm. and that that's been part of the failure here mm-hmm. uh, I mean we can we can also place blame elsewhere it's Not purely government failures there are individual bad agents acting for corrupt reasons and for greed and we have a broader system of capitalism that is part of what enables the systemic failure of our government by enabling the concentration of huge amounts of wealth and so power in a very small number of hands Uh, and normalising the pursuit of great amounts of wealth as a noble and admirable social pursuit. So there's a a lot of blame to go around and on the one hand that can make it feel overwhelming and like how can we possibly do anything at all about this but on the other hand it it actually makes me feel a bit hopeful because it's sort of like well wherever you look there's stuff to be done.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: That for each of us there are ways of actually contributing to this issue.
1: That's in right. meaningful ways, it's true. Where it's we true. can and and calling calling on our government, our New South Wales government, to enforce its own legislation is pretty important, and that's true in the, with water as it is with you know operations of mines and you know any other like uh, like you know proper resourcing of the EPA Environment Protection Authority. You yeah, know, they're all important issues for environmental protection, protection of communities, and restoration of trust as well. Yeah. So as you say, I mean, very important issues that I have ramifications for the trust that we hold for our own government, that we trust to govern, you know, for the common good on our behalf.
0: Yeah. So in just a minute, we'll get into our third segment of uh, some of the specific things that we can do and that listeners can do to meaningfully contribute to uh, these questions. Before we get there, though, two further points. One is we've barely mentioned so far climate change. We noted that the the numbers that were built into the legislation, the amount of water that needed to be recovered, that is the reduction in extraction in in order to ensure the ecological health of the river, the scientific number was a range and the number that was picked was lower than the bottom end of that range. But that range was itself developed, am am I right, without reference to climate science, particularly the, the science around human impacts upon the climate system and the warming and drying uh, of the Australian continent that is already visible in the data and is projected to in- become increasingly so in the decades and centuries ahead. And so the already under ambitious legislation failed to consider this crucial context that changes so much. There's a, a further failure here and the failures of the federal government to do, you know, around climate policy are myriad and we can spend whole future episodes on that. Regular listeners will know that's a bit of a theme throughout these podcasts. A lot of the
1: theme.
0: But um, it, it does connect here. It's not drawing a long bow by any means to link the, the dying or the ill health of the Murray Darling system with the extra pressures placed on that system through the warming and drying of the region as a whole. Yeah,
1: longer term warming and drying, yeah, which put you know, reduces, reduces the water. And other things, other things as well. So for example, the, the fires around Canberra of 2003, mm. something like that happens, those sort of catastrophic events. And then the amount of water absorbed for regeneration of those places. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's not something we think of in terms of mm. climate change, but you know, it soaks up soaps up a lot more water. So that's right. We're not
0: just talking about how much rain falls. Because no. when you're talking about river flow, it's, it's a combination of the rain that falls and how much of that actually makes it to the river that's affected by many things and one is the dryness of the soil and the amount of revegetation that might be happening Uh, also before we get to the third segment i wanted to have another brief interlude and so i thought i might ask you when have you changed your mind over something as an adult could be something trivial could be something major but this is a one of those questions i'm asking many of my conversation partners because i'm fascinated by how people go about changing their mind on things and i think it's an important assumption for all of us to have that the things that I currently believe and accept might not be the same as they were 10 years ago or in 10 years' time, that, that people can and do change their minds on things.
1: Mm. These visits out to the basin have, I think, given me a more nuanced view of farming communities. Hmm. Uh, as a city person, ignorant city person, and uh, I've had perhaps some prejudice, which I, I hope I no longer have. I hope I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open to and appreciative of farming people. I think I always was, but... But, you know, that human contact Mm -hmm. has helped change that. But I'm thinking back to fairly early adulthood. I grew up as a Christian who had an image of Jesus as gentle, meek and mild. The Jesus I encountered then in my early 20s was anything but that. So Jesus who turned the tables in the temple and so on was, you know, a creative, outspoken, ornery Jesus. So it, it was... Quite a shock to me, and uh, invigorating and enlivening to see that, to see my tradition in a different way. Mm. A pretty, pretty big change.
0: Mm. So not just the Jesus who speaks blessing, but the Jesus also speaks woe, uh, the Jesus so blessing speaks upon woe. the poor, but woe to the powerful who are abusive and oppressive.
1: Yes, and the Jesus who you know unrolls the scroll from Isaiah, and the community wants to push him off a cliff. That Jesus, mm. which I failed to notice as a younger person,
0: yeah, yeah, for whatever I mean, reason. Yeah, that phrase that sticks in my mind from N.T. Wright is a crucifiable Jesus, mm-hmm. the kind of guy who gets people so annoyed that they want to kill him. That if our picture of Jesus is, is so kind and nice and gentle and loving and polite and middle-class and sort of non-threatening, then why on earth would anyone want to kill him? But actually he was someone who got under people's skin in quite profound ways. Let's move on to our third segment, what is it that we're going to do about the Murray Darling? And particularly perhaps where some of our listeners may be overseas, some of them may be a long way from the Murray Darling, wrestling with how we can actually engage with the issue, which as we've noted, is it's so complex, has such a stakeholders, has such a history, involves the interconnecting failures of multiple compromised systems. Where can we actually get a meaningful purchase on this? And how might we build lives better for community? towards the flourishing of our rivers. How we usually structure this segment is by seeking responses at a few different levels. And this time we might start with a book recommendation or, or reading recommendations So, how can we go deeper, how can we get a better grasp on this complex topic. And so, you get a couple of thoughts on some good things for people to read if they want to dive deeper here.
1: Yeah, so some, sur- some reading recommendations. So my first one is the Murray-Darling Declaration. So this was a declaration from a year ago um, by 12 leading experts on the basin. And they were calling for, for three things to try and improve how we're dealing with the Murray-Darling Basin issues. So they said, stop further expenditures on sub- subsidies or grants for irrigation infrastructure until there's an audit of what the money spent's achieved. So we talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. And then they want to establish an independent expert scientific body to monitor what's going on with the implementation the act so this there's a a short declaration to read and its background and why these experts came to that point that is you know it's not a long read and it really helps from an independent perspective yeah
0: when when you say short read read, you're talking just a couple of pages pages, yeah yeah Yeah. and the second recommendation
1: yeah the second recommendation so we've talked about the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission that was set up by the South Australian government uh, Brett Walker as Commissioner I'm going to recommend the executive summary It's a fairly, it's an erudite read by Brett Brett Walker. Um, So it's probably not what we're used to reading in terms, in journalistic terms. It's a Royal Commission report, quite lengthy report. But the Executive Summit, it is really helpful in understanding the background. So he talks about the background as well, not just the current situation and where we are now. So that's around, what, several dozen pages. Yeah, so I would recommend that uh, as a second read. The third thing, can you give another one? Um, So... We have talked a little bit about the millions of fish that have died at Menini. The opposition, uh, actually, so, so Labor Bill Shorten commissioned a report on, on the part of the Australian Academy of Sciences into why those fish deaths occurred. Again, I'd recommend the executive summary for a clear explanation.
0: And that's from the Australian Academy of Sciences. Right. It was initiated by Bill Shorten, but the AAAS is a highly reputable scientific body, uh, well respected around the world independent.
1: That's right, um, and, and they, they have released that report publicly and in full. So yes. you, you know, and again as we've been talking about, transparency is so important here. So it was released at the same time it was delivered to Bill Shorten. Excellent. Next I wanted
0: to think about how can we engage meaningfully and at depth with this issue? What are what are some more ambitious life commitments that we might make if we want to see flourishing waterways in our land? you you had a thought about things to do locally, and then I'd have thought about some broader picture stuff.
1: For me, coming away from these five trips to the basin and attempting to grapple with these complex issues has meant uh, a need to commit uh, and recommit to local waterways here and their own health as well. So for me, in the first instance, that as an inner Sydney uh, person is to even find out, as funny as this may seem to many people in other places, like what is my local you know, because everything's so concreted over, so even that required some investigation. So I live in the Cooks River catchment. Um, I live in Redfern. The Cooks River catchment, Shears Creek, uh, was my was my local creek. Now known as the Alexandra Canal, um, which has the misfortune of being one of the most polluted waterways in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. So that to find that out is more than symbolic. Mm. It is to connect with our place, yeah, and and you know, connection to the places where where we live and love and care for them is all part of this picture. It's not only concern about you know somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are uh, just
0: hundred meters or so away from Cascade Street, which is the local waterway here, but it's now just a road. And every time there's heavy rain, you see how it was a waterway because it turns into one again as the water floods down uh, into the harbour, but. It's uh, Yeah, that's, that's right, there's, there's so much that is hidden in an urban context about the, the basic ecology of the area that you're in, the watershed, and the, the water flows that are so important to all the living
1: creatures. That's right, and so then finding about um, local groups or work by the local council as well to care for, um, in our case as urban people, urban biodiversity and what we do uh, on the land where we live as well to contribute to that. So for for listeners that might also be finding out about a local creek care or bush care group or uh, local council programs or what can we plant ourselves how are we responsible users of water ourselves mm. how can we you
0: know support the important local work that groups and councils do yeah now that's not going to obviously directly improve things for murray darling hundreds of kilometers away but it may make a difference at a local level and i think it, it also, also has a, some other really important effects of helping to build us up emotionally socially spiritually for some of the bigger struggles that actually engaging with our local neighborhood and understanding the specifics of the world in our immediate context really helps to ground any larger struggles at a national or international level which can sometimes be a bit abstract you know on fighting climate change to improve the health of the murray darling you know can can be a bit disconnected from the everyday doing that work of just trying to improve your local little waterway yeah, help, helps to keep it real, helps to keep it grounded and can be nurturing and sustaining at a small level, uh, as well as giving a taste of building local community and, and, and local political voice for speaking up for a, a local waterway. That can feed into the larger struggles and so the point I wanted to make is that as we've been discussing this issue i hope it's become clear that actually the the failures that have led to the crisis of the murray darling basin are many actually there are many failures happening here interlocking systems um, that aren't working as they ought to and that that actually means we can make a meaningful contribution towards improving that situation by seeking to address a number of different systemic injustices so any work to seek climate justice is uh, an effort that will slow the warming and drying of the Murray Basin. Uh, Any effort to fight corruption and improve transparency in governments at local, state, federal levels, contributes to the possibility of those authorities actually taking their role in looking after the river more seriously. Anything that we can do to help our society pay more attention to First Nation voices and, and to address the great wounds of history dispossession of the land likewise it will affect the ability of the first nations communities on the river system to gain access to, to water and any efforts that we're making to fight inequality in in society and the unequal power distribution between the very few who have so much and the many who have much less these are interlocking issues and so there, there are so many opportunities to uh, contribute, that you don't necessarily have to travel out to the Murray-Darling yourself, that that may be a good thing to do, but you can actually meaningfully contribute to some of these larger issues right where you are by seeking to, to make a difference locally on some of those uh, particular challenges that we face. And so join a group that's fighting for one of those things. If you're not already part of a group working for climate justice or uh, working to address inequality in society or trying to fight political corruption or... Uh, that's seeking greater visibility and justice for first nations peoples then join with others in doing that because it's it's only by working together that there's a chance of addressing some of those systemic issues and so let's end with a couple of immediate actions very concrete things that can be done towards this end and one of the ones that i wanted to say is with a election coming up in just a few weeks time a federal election likely happening in may i want to encourage listeners both for yourselves and in your conversations with others, to take political corruption and transparency with utmost seriousness as a top level issue in your deliberations around voting. Because I think this is one of those issues that cuts across so many of the challenges that we face, whether it's trying to get our uh, greenhouse gas emissions under control, whether it's looking after biodiversity, whether it's getting properly funded hospitals and schools or whatever the issue is, Having a government that's more responsive to the needs of the population and less responsive to the, the desires of big money is a good thing. And so I want to encourage you that if you are in a jurisdiction with a government that has not been doing well on that front, has not been transparent, to vote them out and uh, to put corruption last is what I've been encouraging people to do on Facebook. Uh, that is to, to take this seriously as an electoral issue. I mean, have any other thoughts of things that people can do just at a very concrete, practical, immediate level?
1: Mm. So, I mean, I hesitate to, you know, given the formula of the question, to suggest that people read more, but I just wanted to give a shout out to the Lock the Gate Alliance. Mm. The and reason, the reason I want to do that, so that's, so that's a coalition of groups um, that are trying to stand against new developments and expansion of fossil fuel projects in various parts of the country really encourage people to have a look uh, at their campaigns and what they're what they're asking for support for and in many places this is inside the basin mm. as well so we're talking about fossil fuel um, projects like for example coal sink gas in the piliga mm. forest that you know directly impact on water yeah open cut car coal basin. mining so and that's right and and yeah open cut car- coal mining uh Places. Yeah. So this is important too. I think when it is so important to stand against uh, the Adani coal the Carmichael coal in the Galilee Basin, there are many other mines as well that you know we we don't hear as much about. It. Yeah, really encourage people to have a look at that um, and to support those groups.
0: Well, thank you, Miriam. It's been. Excellent conversation, I think, Where I've learned a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. And uh, thank you, listeners, for sticking with us. And if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. But it is excellent to pay attention to what's going on in the world around us. Try to put our heads together to understand that better and to work out how we can meaningfully get our hands dirty and to make the world better. I'm Byron Smith, and this is The